I have a dream to make movement practice universally understandable and accessible to anybody in the world and even understandable to those who are outside of the culture. I've started with the podcast featuring conversations that I have with teachers and practitioners who are in this community. I've learned so much from these conversations and really connected with people, both the listeners and the people that I've got on the podcast, and that's been a real joy. And so I want to pay that forward. I want to help listeners to this podcast also connect with other listeners and with teachers who I have on the podcast. So I'm really pleased to announce the opening of the Active Hang. The Active Hang is an online discussion board or a forum, a space for thoughtful and critical discussion on movement practice. You have a question? You want to meet the others? Jump on the Active Hang, say hello, ask your question and connect. My dream for the Active Hang is that it can become an asset to the community, a knowledge bank, a resource, one where people come and contribute. Where can you find it? It's on thepassivehang.com. It's free to sign up. Come in and say hello. Once more again, you can access it at thepassivehang.com. All right, guys, it's episode 39, and today I have Connor Wilde on the podcast, who is a movement coach, acrobat, and circus performer who resides in Tasmania, Australia. This one is really killer. Connor shares both his perspective on how to approach soft acrobatics and creative sequencing, and I really enjoyed this one. We're going to get started now. Thanks, guys, for joining in once again. It's another episode of The Passive Hang. We're at um, episode 39, on here, and I've got Connor Wilde on the podcast who resides in Tasmania. And for those people who don't know where Tasmania is, it's a small little island. Well, it's not actually small. It's quite big, but at the very southern tip of Australia. So it's probably known as a safe haven in this wild, wild time of um, a virus talk. So... Maybe to kick it off, I'd love to just ask how how did how does one find their way ended up in Tasmania? Oh, good good question, and it's been it's been a journey. Um, so I'm from the UK originally, um, another small island, and uh, <laughs> basically I came over to Australia in 2015 to work with Circa. They're a contemporary sex company based in Brisbane. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and on the project we were doing there, I met my now wife. Um, so we spent quite a long time on the road touring. Um, we were in Berlin for a while and then kind of touring and then we worked for separate companies for a little bit and then we managed to wrangle our way into a job together with the Seven Fingers in Montreal. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we had been living in Montreal before COVID hit, but prior to that, we'd actually, some really good friends um, lived down here in Launceston and they kind of did a sneaky sell on us when we, we came down to visit and they were like, yeah, but like, check out the gorge, isn't it beautiful? And have you tried this walk and like, check out this cafe and come to the market. Um, and we just totally fell for it here. And we saw a house that we loved and we're like, should we do it? Should we? So like... We went to have a look at it and it sold like so mm-hmm. fast. Um, and then my wife got real serious about it and was on like, 
um, online searching for places quite a lot and, and found this place and she'd gone and got pre-approved because she's real um, fastidious like that. <laughs> um, so we just jumped on it and we bought this house. We, we, we like flew down the weekend after we saw it. Um, we just happened to both be free because we were working for two separate circus companies. So it was really serendipitous. Um, and then got this place and then the plan had always been to kind of end up here and then COVID really fast-tracked that. Um, so we were in Montreal. Um, my wife was heavily pregnant. Mm. Um, and then basically we had our son and the, the following day the nurse came in and was like, are you guys all right? And we we're like, yeah, yeah, we're good. She was like, okay, well, I recommend you leave because, um, the first case of Corona is coming in today. So if you can get out quick, that would be great. <laughs> <That's> um, <laughs> weird and wonderful time. Yeah. So we um, basically just were like, okay, well, let's get the three of us back home to Australia as fast as we can. Hmm. Um, so we escaped from Canada um, when our son was three weeks old. Um, which was a bit of a process, like kind of getting him a passport, trying to work out which passport we got him because I'm British. He was born in Canada, so he gets a Canadian passport. And then mm -hmm. my wife's Australian, so it's like, do we, is Canada faster? And then Canada works, we're, passport, no, we, we can't do that right now. Like everything is closed because of COVID. We're in mm -hmm. full lockdown. We're like, okay, Australia, help. <laughs> <laughs> But we, yeah, long story short, we managed to get back um, and we were in Melbourne for a while. And then the people who were living in our house um, were moving into their own place that they built. So it was perfect timing. We waited until they moved out and then we snuck in and now we're here. So that was quite long. <laughs> well, it sounds like you've had a whirlwind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 2020, which you know, I, think, I think for a lot of us, uh, it's, been, it's been pretty crazy, but that sounds like it you know on on the top of the list I, I think in terms of a newborn trying to sort out all that i guess a shift in your whole life as well because very much so yeah a circus performer and what from what it was sounding like you were traveling the world and then now you're in this this pocket of australia as well um are you still performing what's happening with the circus world at the moment well there's not a huge amount of performance going on right now um i think the issue with just audience size um, is really tricky and it makes it really hard to get enough people who can come to an event to make it worthwhile putting it on. Like I, I really think that's turning around now and things are starting to happen, um, but it's slow. And like we've, we've kind of had a few conversations about potential stuff but it's also just really scary. Like Australia feels really safe right now. Like mm -hmm. we've, we've done the hard work. The numbers are really low um, and life is pretty close to normal. So when someone's like, Hey, do you want to come and do a show in Europe? You're like, maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think also being a dad, um, that just really changes your perspective and mm. your priorities shift. So it's like, would he be safe there? Can I guarantee that? I don't know. So maybe we mm. should reconsider that and kind of make more of a life here and be a bit more settled. But it's definitely a change of pace. It's a real shift from um, touring full time. 
Yeah, I guess it shifts from, you know, you could have just gone over yourself or done whatever, right? But then suddenly you have this responsibility as a father, right? And you probably have to move as a family unit. So, Absolutely. Yeah, it's funny how these sort of priorities change. But in the, in the circus, like what sort of stuff were you doing? Um, like when you fall under the banner of performer, do you have like a, a specialization? How does that all work? Yeah, um, so I trained in London um, at what was then called the Circus Space and is now called the National Centre for Circus Arts. Um, And I specialised in Chinese pole. Um, And then I did teeterboard as a minor um, and then spent a lot of my own time working on both dance and acrobatics. but they weren't kind of official specialities. Um, so yeah, my specialization technically is Chinese pole, but I've, I've spent a lot of time working on the kind of dance acro side of things. Um, and recently, I mean, I haven't touched a pole for going on nine months now, which is weird. That's the longest it's been since I started in 2008. Um, so yeah, that's, that's been a real interesting shift to just how my body feels like my upper body's way smaller, mm-hmm. um, which also means my spine is way more flexible. And it's like, it's really interesting. The, the acro moves are now available because of the other stuff that I'm not training. Ah, that's really interesting. Yeah. A shift in the sort of, uh, the body, maybe just the organization and the composition opening up some new avenues. Yeah, I think I've also, I've really changed the way that I train. Um, I mean, not performing really shifts. Like performance means like the impetus is on doing the show and doing the best thing you do on stage, right? Mm. Where when you're at home and you're moving for yourself or for you're chasing a trick or a goal or a range of motion, if you're not feeling it that day, you can be like, you know what, maybe I should do something else that feels good for my body or that supports this or that um, will further that process, but in a different way where with Mm. a show, you're trying to replicate the same thing night after night, whether you feel amazing or awful, um, the show must go on. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I always hear this, that performers, what you see on stage is almost in their, in their basic or they've got it so owned that it doesn't matter sort of what energy state that you're in, you know, that you can just execute on that trick. So the things that maybe are more on the edge of your ability, I mean, it blows our mind seeing you guys do that stuff on stage, but there's like a whole other area that we never see as well, but it's it's not like stage ready. Yeah, totally. And I'm, I'm a real sucker for pushing myself a bit further than I should. Um, I just like, I want to share the best thing I can do, you know? Um, and for sure there is stuff that's just not ready yet. Um, but there's also that, that trial by fire where you're like, I'm going to put this on stage and see what happens. And like, there's a point where it becomes okay. Um, I I wouldn't recommend it as a course of action, but I'm just that type of person that I, I, I I love to push and I sometimes push a bit far. Do you have a point somewhere where you kind of go, okay, I'm really owning this skill or this, this trick, you know, coming from the movement culture a lot, sometimes that people 
might be trying to reach this sort of stage before they move on to the next level of skill, right? That sort yeah. of like the, uh, the precursor or the skill ladder. So in terms of your mind, say from the performance perspective, is there a certain thing that you look out for where you go, okay, now I know that I can hit this. I think there's a number of things that I look for. Um, one is consistency. Like how many times can you do it? Um, like if you're hitting it 10 out of 10, it's like, great, you can do this trick on its own. Then the question is, can you do it when you're tired? Can you do it in a sequence? Hmm. Um, so one of the things I often build, like the way that I add kind of my newer um, or less comfortable tricks into apps or sequences is I'll, I'll stick them in early or I'll make them the first move in a sequence. Mm-hmm. So you only have to sequence the second half of the trick, if that makes sense. So you, mm-hmm. you can till, still take that prep time that you would take if you were just doing the trick up as a standalone. Mm-hmm. And then you flow into whatever else you're doing. Um, and you just give yourself that beat to prepare. And then once that feels really good, then I'll kind of shove it in the middle of the sequence and see how that feels. And then there's a point where it becomes really comfortable and you're hitting it every time and you can do it out of whatever link comes into it, into whatever goes out of it. And then you're like, and now let's see how it feels when I'm exhausted and you can start um, kind of gently Hmm. moving it towards the end of the act. If you, if you want to put it there. I like this progression. Yeah. So, you know, when you're fresh, when you can set up the way that you're used to set up, you can launch into it. And then as you become more comfortable, you can move it more in between other sort of tricks. Do you have sort of go-to tricks that maybe, you know, that it's a bit harder to link them together and that's like a testing ground because then if you can go from one to the other, then you've got it or how, do, how does that sort of work? I mean, I think it definitely depends on the skill, you know? Um, so there are certain skills that, sequence really naturally and there are other skills that don't so much um and actually one of the things i've really tried to do in a lot of my practice is to stop thinking about things as tricks Mm -hmm. um or as um even the skill like i think it can be quite limiting to just be like right this is a, a square and inside this square lives a trick and i can put that square places um, I try and challenge myself to, to kind of snip it up into smaller component parts so I can make decisions in the middle of the trick. So you might start a trick and then it will finish somewhere totally different. Mm. Um, or you might begin somewhere that you didn't expect and then come in at the middle of a trick. Um, so that way you also, I find you, you find it's interesting. They're often not new tricks, but you kind of come to tricks that already exist through your own research rather than just trying to learn Mm. someone else's skill. And I think it's a really interesting way into understanding them. Mm. Um, And it's a really interesting way of sequencing because it's not that thing where it's like, I know that if I want to set this thing, I need to be cleanly Mm. in this position. You're like, well, where can I intercept this movement and this skill? Mm. Um, I think this is a good segue maybe to just jump into like the learning process. And if you're trying to learn something new, whether you turn it, term it a trick or a skill or whatever, how do you approach that? How do you research it and then go, okay, 
this is the way to go. And then where does it start developing into what you were saying then um, before, which is like starting snipping it up and then, you know, getting into imperfect entries or exits in different points in time. Yeah. Um, I think it's a really interesting process and it's a process that has changed a lot along the way. And I think if I went back and wanted to teach myself all the skills I can now do, I would teach myself very differently. But that said, that's how I learned them. And there, there is value in that because it worked. Um, a, a big part of my process is um, learning to fall and throwing things just a tiny bit before you're ready in a really safe environment. Hmm. Um, and I think like I, I, as I said before, like I like to push and I, um, often maybe jump the gun for my skill level. Um, and what that, that has meant is that I have fallen a lot in my life. Um, and I actually think that ended up serving me really well because it means that it's like, okay, I'm going to try this thing and I'm probably going to deck it, but I, I know where the floor is. I know how to intercept this stack and just kind of walk it off and then come back and try it again. Um, that said, that's not at all the process I use at the moment. Um, what I tend to do now is I, I will, again, um, snip movements up and work out what, what you need, like what's the range of motion you need, what's the prerequisite strength you might need, what's the beginning of the trick, what's a similar skill that links into it, um, and then how do you train the end of the trick um, so one uh, I'm working on at the moment, um, and I'm, it's just kind of coming together in a, a really pleasing way is Helicoptero. And it was just one that I just couldn't mm -hmm. get my head around for ages. And I felt like everyone in the kind of acro dance community was just like putting in everything. I was like, I need this <laughs> skill. It's like a basic now. Um, and I just went, actually, just take a step back from the skill. Like, what is it? I'm like, essentially, it's a cartwheel. And then at the end, the leg swings, and then it becomes a reverso. Mm -hmm. So I was like, okay, drill the cartwheel with the slight extra swing and get that um, pattern so you're not trying that classic um, step over the leg, like you're getting that swing. Mm -hmm and nail your reverso and whilst you're at it get your tinsica get your tinsica that comes around the side um and then like what you're doing is you're feeding into your brain's understanding of how to stand up from that kind of box position with a slight twist and momentum mm -hmm. how to create power from a cartwheel um, and then the other thing I did is I elevated it. So I would do it with my hands higher than the floor. So I mm -hmm. didn't need as much range of motion through my hips to get up onto my feet. Um, and then I would just like gently take the thing um, lower and lower and lower until eventually I was working on the floor. So essentially what I do is I just throw lots of variations of the information I want my brain to process mm. at my brain until it can kind of get it all to link up into the movement. Hmm. Um, does that make sense? Yeah, it's kind of like a smarter way other than just trying to do the thing, right? Which I think sometimes is easy to fall into because you see it and you're just like, I really want it. I'm just going to try really yeah. hard to, to do it. 
but there's something within whatever stored in your mind communicating through down to the chain through your hips that doesn't click right sometimes it can yeah. be the most basic movement or to like a more advanced one such as this and i like this way it's kind of like this uh this chunking out the parts and then learning the positional awareness or the way to enter or to ex exit which is kind of retraining maybe your natural tendencies because you've done a cartwheel maybe for so many times and it's just your usual urge to end it in that way instead of the way that you need for the, for, for this uh, helicopter. And I think, uh, so like that, that big chunk of breakdown, like that's, that's the skill component of it. Mm. Um, that's you getting your brain around pathways and skill, but then there's, there's strength um, and mobility so for me, actually, a huge opener for me was getting my sissy squat mm -hmm. um, and just kind of like unlocking that thing. of was like, actually, you don't need a crazy good back arch to stand up with open hips. Mm. You just need to be strong enough through that knees over toes range that you can take some of the arch out of your back and put it into your knee bend. Mm. Um, and I found when I started really training, like strength training, like diagonal stretch and uh, sissy squats like all my forward tumbling got so much easier and I was like wow like I've just been throwing tricks but actually I think it's really important to be strong enough for the moves that you want to throw because you can build strength by throwing skills right mm -hmm. or you can get smart and get strong enough for the skills you want or stronger ideally like ideally you want to be working well within your strength range mm. um so that the skills aren't a risk they're just complicated movement patterns yeah i like uh, that it's a little bit like you could you know to some extent when you do the movement that can build strength in and of itself but then you can approach it the other way where you focus on the capacity in a separate movement which might be more targeted to for yourself like it was sounding like that 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 open hip position down in the lower legs and there's a better yeah. tool for that and then when you go back to the other thing then it kind of just makes it easier yeah and and that's totally what i found is like i kind of went on this um sissy squat got into a bit of a hole and i'm still in it really on the, <laughs> the moment and that yeah for me they've really unlocked a bunch of of kind of low bridge and forward tumbling stuff. Um, and I think, I think the, the key is a, another key is play. Like skill training should be playful. Mm. I think if you get to the point where you're banging your head against a brick wall, trying to get a skill, just go home <laughs> like, or do a different skill, yeah. like cha change the game, find a place that is fun because if you're having fun, you're way more likely to learn your brains in a much more receptive position mm. um, to take on new information. And if you, um, one thing that I heard recently that really resonated with me, um, a guy called Henry Hannanen was saying that you, you want to reframe failure mm -hmm. as learning opportunity. So if you think there's like the perfect skill, right. And the reality of, completing a perfect skill almost never happens. Like you get a close enough approximation that people go, yeah, that was the thing. Hmm. Um, but everyone's body's different. One day you're a bit tired. One day you're a bit stiff. Like something's always like a tiny bit off and that's fine. That's the nature of movement. That's the nature hmm. of being human. 
Um, but all of those tiny deviations from perfect actually inform your understanding of the world around perfect. And the further that understanding gets, and you take this right the way to like decking it, like mm -hmm. falling on your butt, like, or like eating grass, like landing on your face. You're like, okay, cool. Now I understand what happens if that happens. Mm -hmm. So rather than being like, I failed, I messed up that skill. You go, I learned something new. Great. I understand what happens when I do that. Maybe don't do that because it's not the result I want, but I get it. Like, and I think that thing of reframing failure. So it's like, oh, cool. I learned something new, put it in the bank, try and do the thing that I was aiming for a bit better. Mm. This also, I think, reduces almost this fear element because the fear comes from the uncertainty of the unknown of what's going to happen if you go into any of these variations, right? Such as if you deck yourself, but then if you do deck yourself and you kind of come up and you're still kind of, yeah, to some extent you're, you're still good, then that kind of goes, oh, okay, like that can happen, but that, that may be a bit uncomfortable, but that's all right. Yeah, yeah, totally. And it comes back to that falling thing. Um, I think the more you can fall in a safe environment, the, the better you'll get at falling in a slightly less safe environment. And eventually just falling over will be like, cool, actually, I just starved that out and no one even knew it was a fall. Hmm. But so it's that you, safety thing. Yeah, how do you create this safe environment? Well, I think like a... Um, a gymnastics gym or a parkour gym or a circus training space is often a great place to start. Um, they'll have crash mats, maybe a pit. Um, and I think, I think the thing with falling is when you have soft stuff around you, it's really tempting to just like flop and just be like, Oh, I'm just going to let the mat take this. Um, but the thing I've been trying to do recently is fall how you would fall if you were falling onto concrete like work out how you would save yourself and learn that pathway so that that pathway becomes a reflex. Um, because if you're changing the way you fall, depending on your surface, there's thinking time mm. at the same time, your brain's trying to work out where you are in space. It's trying to orientate yourself. And then you're asking it to make a decision, take the decision out of it. Just be like, cool, this is a safe way to fall from this orientation. So as soon as it orientates, it's like, cool, I'm falling this way. And that's the softest way I can possibly fall. Mm. In fact, I've got a crash mat right now. Awesome. Not going to feel this at all. Mm -hmm. Then you try it on say a, a thinner crash mat or a sprung floor. Um, and then you could progress to, um, just like acromat or grass, mm -hmm. uh, sand. Um, yeah, like I think it's, it's that thing of you work within your comfort zone and you work on things that are inherently soft. Mm -hmm. And it's that thing of like, we're training for the thing that we don't want, right? Like you're, you're building yourself a safety net, but the, the ideal is that you never have to use it, but it's great to have it. And it's like a mm -hmm. condom, right? not the ideal that you never want to use it, but it's better to have one than not. <laughs> <My point. laughs> yeah, I like this um, because so often when you're looking around inspired by what's around you, right? You see people in the finished product doing it on the concrete, nice and soft, it's all polished. And then you kind of like want to jump there, but it makes sense, you know, even if it's a bit harder because you can't access that gym all the time or that softer place all the time, then that's actually worth it, right? To reduce that risk down, especially when everything is so 
uncertain so that you can keep on going. But what I wanted to ask you about was actually during this journey, how do you go about like this diagnosis of what's going wrong? Like how, where, how, how does your feedback come so that you're like, oh yeah, maybe I do need more of that strength or I do need to reduce it down to this positional awareness or this other trick so that, and that that can relate to this? That's a really good question. And I think um, part of that has come from um, that thing of like breaking movements down into smaller parts. Mm-hmm. And the more you learn to look at movements as chunks, pieces, the easier it is to be like, oh, actually, okay, so you're landing on your right foot there. And if I do a chintz curl, I'd also land on my right foot. But if I did my reverso rotating that way, I could come out on my right foot that way. So how is the step out rotational around the side or is it over the top? And you can kind of work out what you're aiming for. And again, kind of fill in all the gaps around it. Um, but, but it does take practice. And I think a great way to, so something I, I would often get my students to do is um, an exercise I call tuck straddle pike, um, which is basically like when you're taught to do handstand forward roll or um, jumps, just like there's loads of basic gymnastic movements where they get you to do a whole load of variations mm-hmm. of shape before they kind of let you move on to doing somersaults or whatever else. Um, and actually you can apply these to loads of things, anything like mess with the shape. So you understand the movement more fully. So like if I want to get really good at cartwheels, you can just do a, like a kind of classic straddle cartwheel a thousand times. Mm-hmm. Great. But then you can try like a, piped cartwheel or a tucked cartwheel or a stra- uh, straddled is your normal one or a straight cartwheel or a like split leg, um, like a swill. Mm-hmm. Um, like there's all of these variations of cartwheels before you, and then there's all the switch leg variations and then you can do the switch leg into the switch leg out. And, and, and like, you can just, a lot of them are quite basic in theory, but then mastering that basic gives you this whole extra understanding of what a cartwheel is. Mm. And if you have all of this extra understanding of what your cartwheel is, then swinging your leg for a helicopter becomes a bit less scary because you have more information again. So it's that thing of like, um, I've really noticed in lockdown, rather than pushing for more tricks, I've gone back to my basics and I've dug deeper. Mm. And I think training is often cyclical like that. You you get excited. You really want the hard stuff. um, You want to prove yourself. So you push, you, you work really hard to get that, that trick that you are chasing. And there's a point where you're like, okay, there's tricks I'm chasing, but they're, they're not coming anytime soon. Hmm. But if I go back, I totally glossed over log rolls. But mm-hmm. like, I literally spent like 40 minutes the other day, just rolling, just not even a full log roll, like just on my back being like, how do I make this the softest thing it can possibly be? Mm. so that I can bust it out anywhere and it doesn't hurt me. Um, and I think it's that thing of going back and interrogating the movement and, and getting that deeper understanding that allows you to then take that understanding into the harder movements again. 
Hmm. So what would you define as these basics of, what is it? Is this basics of acrobatics or is this basics of, what is it? Uh, it's funny. Basics is, is um, an interesting word and I've totally been using it loads and it's one of those words I've been trying to cut out of my vocabulary and clearly failing. Um, <laughs> it's because I think basic means different things for different people. Um, someone that started gymnastics when they're tiny, like for them, a double back might be a basic because they're doing twisting doubles. Mm. And, but like for some people, double back might be the roof, you know, that's, just, that's what they're pushing for. Mm. Um, and I think basic has this thing of like, there are, um, the, the basics is like, right. What, what are your foundational movements that you need to learn in order to start progressing? So you learn, let's say a log roll and a forward roll and a cartwheel and a backward roll. And like these, these very kind of the, the, the core components that we all learn as we start an acrobatic journey. And then there are basics for individuals like, and what I would refer to those as is more like your go-tos. Mm -hmm. Um, the tricks you default to most often. So like some people might have Gumby as a really comfortable thing that they go to all the time. Um, and that might be a basic for them where for someone else, they're like, I can't, I cannot get Gumby. It just will not come. Mm -hmm. And, and that's fine because it's not, it's not a basic as in like, you should have it. It's a basic as in for that person, they refer to it as a basic because it's one of their core skills. Mm. Um, and I, I think we, should be careful about how we use the word basic um, because it implies simplicity. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people talk about their basics and they're referring to quite complicated movements. Mm -hmm. I love this. Yeah. It's all about context, right? And yeah, totally. with this inquisitive process that you have on your basics. So what sort of qualities are you searching for when you return to these? At the moment, I'm, I'm really trying to, um, I, th I think part of it has come from this shift from performing um, and, and with performing, there's a bit of an onus on doing the cool hard things um, towards, and that now I'm like, okay, I'm training for myself. What do I want? And I'm like, ah, oh, well, actually I want to not be in pain and I want to have the freedom to move in my body how I want to move. So what I'm really exploring is how to move in a way that's soft. So it might be dynamic, but it can still be soft, right? It's that thing of yeah. how do you find ways to access that um, acrobatic essence, that feeling of it being acrobatic mm. um, without smashing your body into the floor. Um, so a lot of what I'm doing is, is spending time on the floor and just being like, right, if I soften here, does this make this move softer or harder? Does it hurt? Is there a place that it clunks? How do I iron that out? Or do I need to be harder to be softer? Um, hmm. and, I, and, and I think there's, there's lots of interesting questions there. So a lot of what I'm looking into is, is softness in the search for being able to do this stuff when I'm 50, 60. You know, just mm. as long as I want to, essentially, not have an end date defined by my body saying, no, no, we're done. Yeah, I wanted to dive deeper into this concept of softness. What is softness? How to be soft? Because yes. 
in my mind or when I've experimented with these things as well, you can't be just like completely soft because then you're just like a wet noodle that <laughs> it just collapses. Right. So the, there is some notion of needing to be firm to be soft. Like I think that you just briefly mentioned there. So in your sort of research that you've been doing recently, what are the sort of ideas or concepts that you've been playing around to explore this notion of softness? Yeah. Um, well, I think softness is an interesting thing because um, there's softness as a feeling and then there's softness as a quality. Mm. So someone might watch someone tumble and be like, wow, that's really soft. But you don't know how they feel in their body. What mm-hmm. you, You're seeing softness as a quality. And sometimes that's just about being loose in the shoulders and the arms and having like a, a really kind of um, mobile torso and that looks super soft, but they might be like working like crazy in their legs or not really receiving the floor very well and actually being a bit clunky Mm -hmm. physically on the inside, how it feels. So I think there's soft to look at and then there's soft in your body. And I think the ideal is to find an in-between thing, but I think you work towards them separately and eventually together. Um, So yeah, firm to be softer, what I call it, is hard to be soft. Um, I like that. <laughs> yeah. So I'm, yeah, like I'm, I tell my students, it's like, yeah, you, you've got to be hard to be soft or soft to be soft. And they're different things. So if, if you take a log roll as your kind of basic example, if you lay on the floor, um, you can soften, right? You can, you let go of that tension and then you can let go a bit more. Like most of us hold that little bit extra Mm. that we're not really aware of. And then it's that case of like pouring your body into the floor. So there's maximum surface area at all times so that you reduce the weight that any given part is taking. Mm. So you get really kind of gooey with the floor and, and that feels really soft and you can actually, kind of if you get your muscles to soften around the joints, which are normally the kind of clunky bits, um, you you can find pathways that are quite soft um, through a lot of motions, even on a really hard floor, even if you're a really bony person. Um, It's it's possible to kind of find that softness. Um, And then also the other thing that I've been kind of thinking about a lot is we have like... I call them spirals. They're kind of not spirals, but then they become spirals as you move. Um, but they're tracks of muscle. Mm-hmm. Um, that if you place that bit of your body on the floor, your muscle is essentially a pad. Where if you are two centimeters off, you're sticking your bone on the floor. Mm-hmm. So it's hard on hard. And you're going to feel that it's going to hurt. Um, so like if you think about going over your foot, so like through the top of your foot and then into the shin and then around your quad. So that kind of classic, like quite contemporary dance Mm -hmm. reception of the floor. If you find your tibialis muscle, which is your, the muscle on the front of your shin, um, that's really nice and soft. And then if you skirt around the side of your knee, you don't go over your kneecap. That's really nice and soft as well. Mm. But if you go too far around, that's that little bone that sticks out from your femur and that'll get you. So there's like a perfect, spiral that you can 
scoot through and that can be really nice and comfy and then you come into the side of your leg and Mm. and that's meaty and you're not getting bone on floor so so that's kind of your soft to be soft um research is finding these places that you can really soften into the floor but then when you're moving hard like softening like that's a really conscious effort um and sometimes, like, I, I think of it more as, like, be a ball. Like, if you roll a ball, it moves really softly, right? Mm-hmm. Like, it's this smooth roll, smooth line, like, there's no clunks there. So it's like, how do you become a ball? How do you make yourself as round as possible and get rid of all of those clunky bits? Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes it's really hard. Like, arms have elbows. Like, that's inherently an angle, but there's that weird way that you can kind of round your arm and it mm. becomes round despite having this kink in the middle. Um, and it's, it's about finding, finding tension in a way that allows you to roll through it. That means that you glide over the floor as opposed to colliding with the floor. It's like that classic parkour parkour role, right? When you see the experts, they do it, and it's just soundless. It it just yeah, just flows straight through, no matter what height they they jump off. And I have to laugh about this as well with like finding the soft parts of your body because I was trying to find that just uh, the other day, trying to do a pendulum or shoulder roll, and then just getting on this bony ridge on my shoulder. And (laughs) the next day, then I had like bruises on my shoulder. I was like, I just couldn't, I couldn't find it. (laughs) Yeah, sometimes it's really hard. And and the interesting thing is like everyone's body is different, so there's no you can't like tell people how to do it exactly you have to explore it with them and their body Mm. um so it's a it's a really interesting process because how does this feel for you um because i have this great meaty bit like i was really lucky um from doing chinese pole my mid back was like dense um so forward rolls like straight line forward roll not parkour over the shoulder on a hard Mm. floor just i didn't feel my spine at all now i do like that muscle's got a little less thick and um so i've had to kind of change my rolling techniques to to work out how to not feel that that grind Mm. um and it's it's super interesting because some people like well that thing that you're doing doesn't work for me and of course it doesn't because we're all different so we need to find the way that does work for you because there'll be something that doesn't hurt or that at least hurts a lot less than what you're doing right now I like this orientation of this softness um, and you mentioned longevity before because you know a lot of practices sometimes when you're approaching it from a capacity perspective such as strength or mobility involves a lot of and now you know modern day sort of active mobility as well it's like this there's more tension there's more hardness the better right but yeah I've certainly fallen into this before where I remember during my university days, that's all I did was, you know, squat, deadlift, that sort of thing. Then when I was called into action, when I started playing hockey, I was like, yeah, I can do this, but I couldn't, I couldn't use my body. You know, it was like this big mm-hmm. chunky tank, <laughs> <laughs> but I needed a sports car. Yeah. What's that thing of, um, there's, um, power for the sake of power. And I think like often with weightlifting, you're like, how much weight can I move? Um, and one of the things that I find really interesting is like, well, why are you moving that way? Like, what for? Hmm. Um, 
because it's pretty rare that you get to pick up something as well organized as a barbell, right? Like that's a really easy thing to lift. Otherwise we couldn't load them as heavily as we do. Mm. Um, but when you're trying to lift, say a bag of flour off the floor, like you got to get down there, you got to get in it. You've got to like work out how to get it up onto your shoulder. Mm-hmm. Um, it require, and, and I think it's really interesting because there's so much stuff in, um, in the fitness industry about like good movements and bad movements. And a lot of kind of weight training is like, Oh, don't bend your spine. And it's like, but actually like, that's a huge range of motion that you're just like, no. Um, and I think like, if you wanted to pick up a bag of flour without bending your spine, like it is possible, but it's, it's like a, a different challenge and maybe not the most efficient way of doing it. And again, it depends who you are and where you're strong and where you're mobile. Um, I feel like I've deviated from the question. <laughs> what does your training look like at the moment? That's a really interesting question. Um, it depends. <laughs> so I'm going to the gym about three times a week. At the moment, I'm doing a program um, through the athletic troop, athletic truth group. Um, it's Ben Patrick's knees over toes mm-hmm. um, and loving it. Um, so I'm doing that. Um, working through his standards program. And then I am doing my own movement and acrobatics training on the side. Um, Generally, me and my son go to the park. I set him up on a blanket. He hangs out and laughs at me. Um, And it's, it depends. Like there's a couple of things that I've kind of decided are weak spots that I would like to pursue more. So I struggle with that kind of the, the spikes that you need for crocs and air chairs and all that kind of QDR movement. Um, I don't have very much active range there. Like once I'm in the position, I can mm. use it, but to get myself there, um, it's, it's a weak link and I'm just trying to kind of fix that weak link at the moment. So I'm spending a lot of time looking like I'm not very coordinated. Um, <laughs> I'm just trying to work out drills to kind of build that strength and that understanding of that slightly lower. Um, I feel like I'm very comfortable in like off the floor kind of cartwheel level movement. And I'm very comfortable on the floor. Like I've done a lot of floor work, mm-hmm. but that mid place, the, the low bridge, the QDR, all that stuff. Um, there's, I'm doing lots of play and tinkering there, trying to just find new pathways, trying to leave my ego um the park doesn't have a door but you know what i mean um uh and then i'm also i've I've been just chipping away there's a couple of moves i'm like this move is really coming but it's not solid and i'm just going to touch it like a couple of times like little and often and with a real sense of play and no expectation um because i I found expectation has been a real downfall for me in the past like i Mm -hmm expect a lot of myself and I really want a thing. And then I kind of put a, a date or a, like if you've got a show coming up, you're like, oh, I really want to put that in this show. Like mm. it'd be great to have that by the time that that person comes and sees it or whatever. And it just sets you up for disappointment. Like the body has its own ideas. And when you tell it what to do, it often decides that you're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> it's a bit about that like positive versus negative pressure, right? Like in some ways that you can create this urgency to 
to be like, all right, yeah, like I need to organize to get myself there. But then there's always the, the ever lurking dark side that is so easy to get into to be like, oh, I really need it. And my, my whole life is about getting this now. <laughs> <laughs> it's so easy. Like it's so easy to fall down that rabbit hole. And mm. it's just not helpful, is it? But it's, I mean, I think for most people that are on a movement journey, they've, they've got there. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's, there's no secret answer to leaving that behind, but it, I think it like, it's, if you can, the gains come faster. It's in mm. set, like, it's like almost like the less you want it, the more likely you are to have it. Yep. And why did you choose the athletic truth group stuff for your, your addition to the other work that you currently do? Um, I was kind of already on a bit of a mobility strength journey, like so working on a lot of the kind of body weight, um, like sissy squats, dragon squats, shrimp squats, all the weird animal squats. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And just it's interesting kind of seeing his take on on those squats and coming at it from a really informed kind of data driven way. It's like, I want measurable standards that come from like, I'm trying a thing to see if it works. Does it work? Does it add to my practice? Yes or no. If no, cut it out. Let's do something that definitely works. Mm. Um, I just find the, um, the openness that Ben has, like, he's just like, here is my knowledge here's some more, like I realized a new thing here, have it. Here's another thing. Like, it's just like, he's a real nerd. He's really into it. He's super excited. And so am I. And I think that really spoke to me. And I think like his heart, a big part of his selling point is like, Oh, I went from a 19 inch to a 42 inch vertical jump. And I was like, do you know what I could do with the 42 inch vertical jump? (laughs) <laughs> you know like so there's part of me who's like I, I just really want to jump high and there's part of me that's really attracted by like that that idea of like athletic truth like how do we find the truth around good training practices even if they're not the kind of done thing that's normally um prescribed in the gym environment mm. yeah i get this feeling that you're quite a curious individual and you're searching for like this this way and asking the questions right to be like even in your process of cutting things down you'll have like these realizations or these new pathways of approaching these skills which maybe a lot of people are quite familiar with right like the the cartwheel like a lot of teachers can teach the cartwheel but then when you when you go back in this way as well, maybe then you find a new way of recognizing it to then approach it to teaching somebody else as well. Yeah. I think there's definitely, um, it's really interesting kind of going back through and, and realizing like, you're like yeah, I, I can do different shapes in a cartwheel. And then you're like, Oh, straight cartwheels are really hard. <laughs> and, and there's like, there's certain, certain movements that you're like that, that's difficult for me and i just expected to have it because i feel like i have this movement but actually this movement is not a movement it is a world 
and it's like do you, do you, have you mapped that world yet mm. or do you just know one city really well um i think this is a really important point because that's really easy to gloss over like even the other day i was trying to just do some sprinting rhythm work and like tap my foot in a certain way and i just couldn't do it it was like just staring uh, at, at, at myself going like why can't i do this but you just <laughs> you just find these places sometimes where it doesn't click. And then, then, you know, you're like, all right, I'm going to have to spend some time here. I'm going to have to bite the bullet. Yeah. And it's interesting because I think there's that thing of like, do you, do you lean into something that you're bad at hmm. or do you divert and try and find something different that you maybe have a more natural kind of inclination towards, um, because I, I know definitely when I first started moving as a teenager, it's like I was naturally better than average at a lot of things. So when I discovered a thing that I was less than average at, I was like, well, why would I keep doing this? And, and then when I got to circus school and suddenly better than average wasn't good enough, I was like, oh, I've got to start working real hard. Hmm. Uh, and I think that was a real learning point and then when you progress again and you start working with professional companies you're like oh actually and now I've got to start working real hard at this thing that I didn't think I needed or wanted mm. um like I, I remember at school like really being into that kind of super contemporary dance like French style circus um style of Chinese pole trying to just get like flow and movement um with kind of dynamic skills in there. And then I went to work for this company and they were like, Oh, how's your flag? And I was like, Oh yeah, it's, it's a thing, but not great because it just, it had never interested me because everything yeah. I was about was about movement and flow. And it's this static image that I was like, I'm... so then I had to get real good at flags that, Prior to that, I had no interest in, but then I got really interested in it and was like, oh, what else can you do with this? And, and then that took me to a place where I was like, actually, that's enough. That's enough flag stuff. And I've gone down that path as far as I want to go and I can tick that box when I need to. Hmm. And then I kind of came back. But I think it's really interesting, that thing of you often can lose lose bits because you don't think they're valuable because they're not valuable to you in that moment in time. And mm -hmm. then I think coming back to them and seeing what, what other people see is often really helpful. Like I've found that a lot performing is like people will tell you something that you hate is amazing. And you're like, Oh, okay. Maybe I should reconsider my feelings towards that and, and then maybe work on it a bit so that I, I stop hating it because these people already don't hate it. So how do I get myself to a place where like, is it self work or is it just like a little tweak so that it moves the way you want it to? Or mm. It's kind of like, they never know what you actually are intending to do. They just see whatever is actually there. <laughs> so true. And I think I, I've noticed that, um, I did, I did a thing which I actually was super helpful in my progression of kind of making acrobatics flow the way I wanted to. A friend of mine, um, Jake Silvestro, um, did this thing called hurricane acrobatics. And basically 
the premise with four movements. Um, you can have two repeat movements if you want, but essentially four different movements in a sequence, do one every day. Um, so I did. Um, and, and like I'd often do more than four, four movements, but it's like, just make something new every single day. Um, and he would kind of like pick movements, but then kind of randomize the order as well. So you can't even pick things that you think you're going to do well. Mm -hmm. Um, so it forces you to find links between them. And I remember at the time, like making them and just being really frustrated and then kind of watching them like a few weeks later to see how the progress was going and being like, that's really cool. Like, what was the problem? Hmm. And the problem was, it was the expectation. Hmm. Like it's that thing of you've got this idea in your head. And I think so often we learn skills because we see other people doing them. So then yeah. you expect them to look how they look on that other person's body, but we're all different. Um, and I think you've got to recognize that your body will inherently have its own style and you, you need to embrace that because what you're seeing on someone else that you really want, someone will see the way that you, you do the movement and try to imitate that. Mm. And it's like that thing of you, you, you've just got to let it be what it is, which again, it's a journey and it's really hard. Mm. <laughs> That's like the chain reaction effect. You know, you pass it on, on to another and then on to another and then on to another. Um, yeah. At the very start, what attracted you to apply for circus? Um, so it was kind of a bit of a perfect amalgamation of a bunch of things. So I'd been doing parkour, like I, um, I got into parkour. Did you guys have jump London? Did that make it to Australia? Uh, it does ring a bell. Um, so it might've, it was, but there was I've a documentary in the UK, um, about, um, primarily about Sebastian Foucault, but kind of about the original trusses and parkour in general. And I saw this and just was like, I need to do that. Um, and started training the next day and then, um, got really into parkour for a few years and then started having knee pain essentially because I didn't really know how to stretch. So essentially my muscles were too tight and I wasn't relieving them, but mm -hmm. my dad's had both his knees replaced. Um, so I thought, I do not want to be that person who can't move when, when in their later life because I went too hard as a young person. Um, so I freaked out and backed off. And at the same time happened to meet a guy who did Diablo um, and just got really into it, like obsessively so. What is Diablo? So Di Diablo is like you have two sticks with a piece of string between them. Mm -hmm. And then it kind of looks like a, um, like a spool of thread. Like it's like two bowls with a little axle in between them. Mm -hmm. um, and you make it spin um, by essentially by pulling one side of the string. Um, so the friction will make it spin. And then because it has um, speed, it becomes stable. And then you can do tricks kind of like a yo-yo. Mm -hmm. So it's like a yo-yo that leaves the string. Mm, um, I think I've seen that before. And then sometimes they throw it up in the air and then catch it as well. Or? Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so I got super into that. Um, and then was leaving um, sixth form, so 18, kind of going on to university age. And it's really funny. Um, I have this super clear memory of my mum being like, 
I really want you to go to university, just please consider it, like have a look for courses. And she's sure that she never pushed me. She was like, I just wanted you to get like in school until you're 18. That's fine. And I'm like, mm-hmm. one of us is wrong and there's no way. Of going. Um, but so I was looking for university courses because I thought that's what my mom wanted me to at least try and do. Um, and I was just like, there was none of the subjects I was doing at school felt right. I was just like, I just don't, it's not quite vibing. Like I'd been studying theatre and I really enjoyed performing, but I'd gone to this summer camp and one of the teachers there had been like, look, if you don't love it, like if your heart will let you do anything else, do something else because this, this job is really hard and you're probably going to end up working in a restaurant a lot of the time. Like mm-hmm. it's wonderful, but it's not easy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought, like, oh, okay. So I thought I wanted to be an actor. Maybe, maybe that's not a good idea. Um, so then it's this weird thing of like, I find this circus school, circus degree, and I'm like, okay, so I'm juggling. I've got a history of parkour. I've got a history of performance. Like this is kind of perfect. Like everything just kind of fell into place. And then mm. I, I went and did the audition. Um, and got in interesting i got in accepted as on a conditional offer as a juggler they were like you must juggle and i was like okay cool i got there and i saw someone on a chinese pole and i was like what does it take for me to do that (laughs) (laughs) um and, and basically the head of acrobatics was like okay there's free training time after school just like have a chat with some of the other students Mm-hmm. Um, see if any of them are prepared to teach you some bits and pieces. We'll see how you, you're going by Christmas. Um, so that like our terms in the UK, are, we start in September. So it's three months from the beginning mm. um, for me to kind of get to a level where they could assess whether, I think basically they just, a, a lot of jugglers are super dexterous and skilled, but don't necessarily have acrobatic strength background. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're just worried about, crossover equaling injury um but luckily because i've been doing parkour and stuff that strength came really naturally so i Mm -hmm. slipped into the acrobatic department and the rest was history how did you manage like injury or the the threat of injury because when your physical health is at the heart of your career as well that becomes a very scary thought i think yeah 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 it really is Um, And I actually, I graduated school on basically just like cortisone injections and painkillers. Like I had torn the cartilage in my AC joint, which just meant that doing anything on my right arm was agony, but just kind of needed to get through school so I could take the the time off and, and have finished. Um, so I kind of went into the performance industry just being like, you cannot get injured. And of course you can't choose if you get injured or not, like it happens mm-hmm. or it doesn't, but I am deeply stubborn and I missed one show in 10 years. Like, wow. I was just like, <laughs> that's pretty good. Yeah. 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 Um, and I mean, that, that's me performing like through a labrum tear and stuff, which actually looking back on it was probably really stupid. Um, (laughs) 
and I think again, it's that thing of like ego versus looking after mm. yourself. And I, I think it's that thing that it does really hang over you. And I really noticed that my friends who didn't get jobs early actually got way better than when they finished school because they had more time to train. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and then the people who did get jobs would often kind of stay at a relatively similar level with a much slower curve of progression. Mm. Um, because you're training for the show and you're, you're essentially doing upkeep and keeping your body fit enough to do the same thing every night without that being an issue. Um, and, and like you, you, you get new skills, they creep in, you put in the work, but it's, it's not the same as being able to train on a training schedule, you know, and, yeah. and performance doesn't have an off season. Like it's, it's all year round. Sometimes you end up with a couple of months break and you're like, sick, I'm going to get this trick. I'm just going to like push for that. Um, but it's definitely an interesting, it's an interesting dynamic of kind of working. I, like you like train hard, but don't train too hard because you might injure yourself. And, and it's, it's, it's a very weird headspace to be in. Um, and I like the first company I worked for the head coach at the time was like, Oh, but don't injure yourself because they'd had real issues replacing the role that I was going into because people get getting injured. Um, which kind of puts you on the back foot because you're like, Oh, I, mm, but I want to learn all these new things. Yeah. Like I'm in a show that has like a bunch of other group acts that I need to be part of, but I don't like, I, I don't do acrobatic skipping rope yet. Mm-hmm. So how do I learn that without taking risks? Um, so it's, uh, I, I found it really hard to kind of like, because my style of learning is actually just falling over a lot yeah. until it kind of works. Um, which people in the room who don't want you to get injured don't love. <laughs> but I, so I, in the end you do get injured and I often push through always really lucky with when breaks fell. Um, or like, I mean, I guess, did I miss shows then? I don't think I did. I think I, I was really lucky on when a break was, but like sometimes you like, you get an injury and you just need some time out and that's just what needs to happen. And you've got Mm. to do that. And I think injuries are really interesting learning opportunity. And I think they teach you a huge amount about yourself. Um, And like, I wouldn't take the injuries I've had back because they teach you something. Um, And they really give you a chance to reflect and to work out who you are when you don't have these capabilities. Mm. Um, and sometimes that person's not a very nice person. And sometimes you've got to like do a yeah. bit of work on that. Um, so that the capabilities become a bonus rather than everything. Mm-hmm. Now I wanted to jump across to teaching because yeah. we've been talking a lot about your practice and uh, performing. Yep. And when I first came across your profile, it was actually through, I think you had a, one of those super quick reels and you're going through the helix squat. And I was like, yeah. wow, this guy just nailed the helix squat within like 10 seconds. <laughs> Amazing. Who's this guy? <laughs> but what do you teach? How do you describe what you teach? Um, it's really interesting and it's kind of evolving. Um, 
So initially what I did is, so I, I have taught workshops in the past whilst touring um, because they, they go quite naturally hand in hand, but it's quite hard to maintain a consistent class whilst you're on the road. So I've done like three day intensives on dance acrobatics and um, proper technique for building three highs and stuff like that. Um, but then COVID hit and I was like, what? what am I doing? What's, what is this thing? So I just, I put a post out and was like, I have classes. If, if people are interested, I'm, I'm going to make some time to teach. Um, and, and what I did was I was like, what, what do you want? So I, if, if someone contacts me before the lesson, like, like two or three days before we have like a 15, 20 minute chat, of like, who are you? What's your background? What do you want? Like, what, what's your goal? Because actually I don't want to prescribe a system that is what I teach because mm -hmm. you might have noticed a lot of what I do teach is like, oh, it depends. Um, and I, I like me and my wife have this running joke of the answer to every question is it depends. And it's just what it depends on. Mm. Um, and I think everyone's different and everyone wants different things. So I kind of allowed people to inform that. And if it was something I thought I could help them with, then we would have a session or 10, like whatever, whatever it kind of felt right. Um, so a, a lot of what I focus on is softness um, and longevity, acrobatic technique. Um, and then creative sequencing is a really big thing for me, like how to get really creative with acrobatics so that you one don't get bored with your own material but two you keep the audience on their toes and and three just as an excellent kind of tool for yourself to like I really believe you can become a very good acrobat without ever doing anything that leaves the floor like there's people who are amazing who don't do any somersaults or twisting or anything like there's, there's incredible movement potential without having to be a big jumper. Um, but the thing that's interesting is getting really creative with that. Um, so I think what I teach depends on what people want, but I tend to err towards softness and creativity. And what are you finding people are asking for recently? Um, it's been most, mostly those two, because I mean, that's kind of where I tend to be like, right. It sounds like you need this. Does, does this thing that I've been spending a lot of time working on interest you? Um, so some people are like, I, I see you do this trick and I think it's really cool. I'd love to learn that. Mm -hmm. And then it's kind of like I would do a similar thing to what I do in 15 seconds in the reel, but with a lot more information and personalized and, you know, like take the time to be like, so this progression does this because of this. And if you think about that, that might help you with this aspect of that trick. Um, and, and just take people through that process in the hope to kind of give them a movement essentially it's like pay for a session here's a movement um which is a slightly odd dynamic particularly on zoom mm -hmm. um 
it's very, it's like, it kind of works, but it's a bit transactional in where I feel like, I, I think I have a, I, I want to kind of pique people's curiosity so they keep exploring. So that that thing of being like, here is a thing feels like it's just like one and done yeah. where I'd much rather be like, have you thought about this? Mm-hmm. Cool. Do you want to have a longer conversation about that? Do you want to chat about it next time? Or shall I just throw you a bunch of stuff that you can play with? Um, and then maybe we have a session in six months and you've really explored those ideas and then you're like, I, I want more. Um, so I, yeah, I think for, for me, a, a big part of the practice is like, how do you take on the stuff and, and make it part of your own practice? Mm. I like this. Yeah. It's like, because it's not just, you just want that move. It's all part of this longer term process as well, especially if you enjoy the practice as well. Um, and we all know that feeling once you get the thing, then you're kind of like, Oh yeah, what's next? Like this, yeah. <laughs> what's the next move? And you just keep yeah. on rolling on. So, <laughs> and you mentioned previously you've done like the three day intensives or workshops. So yeah. what is the structure or format of that look like? What are the topics that you run through there? So I ran um, a three day kind of introduction to dance acro. Um, and that was, it was three half days. Um, and the first day was really kind of giving people a breakdown of the, the fundamentals of um, dance acro. So, so just like really simple kind of um, a few different roll variations, a few different kind of scoot and slide variations, um, a few cartwheel variations. And that, that was a kind of three hour um, chunk of just like here is a bunch of different movements um, let's just make sure you have these under your belt. Um, and again, like I wasn't pushing for a super high level. I was, I was pushing for that foundational understanding of multiple different ways of moving so that you could then really interrogate them in the next few days. Mm. Um, then in the second day, we, um, it was me and Bryn Sholkopf. We were teaching this together. Um, we did a series of choreography essentially. So we taught people sequences. Um, and I think we taught them five different sequences and they progressively got harder. Um, at, but using movement from the day before, mm-hmm. but kind of chopped up in ways that you might not expect. It wasn't just like, here's a log roll and there's a cartwheel. It was that thing I was talking about earlier. of like, where, where does the segue happen? How do mm. you like, get to this thing in a way that you might not expect. Um, and then the following day we sent, essentially explained how that break it, like breaking down and putting back together process happens. So we talked through a whole bunch of creative tools in order to generate material out of essentially very little. Mm-hmm. Um, and basically day three is like a brain melter. It's um, a little bit longer and it's really like, okay, so we're going to make a sequence and then we're going to mess with that sequence and then we're going to mess with it some more and then we're going to mess with it some more. Um, 
And I was just like, just write down everything we're doing because you're going to want to go back and like do mm. this with multiple sequences or even the same sequence again so that you get used to this process. And then you can either use one bit of this process or the whole process to just turn essentially a sequence that you use all the time into something totally different without having had to learn anything new. Mm. You just kind of re like I, I did a little series, um, like a kind of challenge series during COVID called reinventing the cartwheel. Um, and it's, I, it was a similar concept, this idea of kind of how do you reinvent the movement that you already have to make it exciting again? Um, so yeah, essentially day three was creative mm. tools on mass. And what are, maybe if you could share some, uh, a couple of these creative tools that could, yeah. that you could question yourself um, to break out of the normal pattern, right? So that you could yeah. express a bit um, more individuality. So I think, um, where to start? I, th I think one that I use that's quite simple um, is something I refer to as storytelling. And it's the idea of thinking of a movement as a story. So a story will have a beginning and a middle and an end, right? Mm -hmm. um, and if you start listening to a story that you know, and like then you settle into the vibe, you know the thing, and then suddenly the end is totally different, it, it jars you, right? Mm -hmm. You're like, oh, that's, I thought I knew this, but I don't know this. And you can do that with movement too. So you take... Um, take a really familiar movement, let, let's say a backflip, and then you, you see them set, you're like, cool, I know what's coming. They jump backwards, you're like, I still know what's coming. I've got this. And then let's say they do helicopter legs out of it. And you're like, oh, wasn't expecting that. Now that's more common, so you start expecting it. But it's that thing of like, how do you switch the end of a movement into something that someone's not necessarily expecting? Mm. But you can do that with any part of the movement. So you can um, change the beginning, but then go into something that people are more familiar with or have a really familiar beginning, but a very different middle and end. Um, so it's a way of kind of segmenting a movement into three parts and just pulling one of those parts out and replacing it with something different. Mm -hmm. um, and then when, once you put that in the context of a sequence, it becomes really interesting because you get a bit more um, stuck because you've got a way in. And if I say change the beginning, it's like, but I've got this link and I'm mm. like, okay, so where does the link begin and the move uh, or, or the link end and the movement begin? Mm -hmm. and, and that decision is up to you. Like it's not a fixed absolute, but it's, it's an interesting question of like, right. What, what is the role of the link in this, th in this thing? Like, do I cap it at the very end of, the last movement and essentially it's designed to force you to stop thinking about them as block moves. Um, so then to take that a step further, another thing that I talk about is key positions, um, which is breaking movements down into, so a key position is essentially, essentially a point where you can change your mind within a movement. Mm -hmm. So where, a movement could deviate to a different movement. So I think of it as um, 
like if you imagine kind of like spider diagrams with like guitar hero style like spider diagrams just coming towards you yep. um so you have a spider diagram let's say we're standing and let's use backflip as an example again um you're standing still that's your first key position because from there you have options. You could fall forwards, you can squat for your backflip, you can lean sideways, you can take a step, you can wave to your mum, whatever you want. Um, there's, there's thousands of options. Mm -hmm. Then you squat. The options shift. There's still thousands of options, but they're different. Um, so that's that thing of the spider diagram has rolled away. It's still connected to your current spider diagram. You could stand back up and refine that key position you were just in but you're now in a new one with a different set of mm. directions. Then you send your weight backwards. Suddenly your spider diagram gets much smaller, but you have still different options. Like you, you could just sit down and do a backward roll. You could just sit down and lay on your back and be a beetle. You can send it for the backflip, but then once you send it for the backflip, how much power you're in denotes how much, how much power you put in denotes how far you go and what the next decision ends up being and like the better you are you end up with key positions in the air so like if you're in mid-air there's a key position there where you could start twisting um so basically you you break it down to every point at which that's a spider diagram appears and you could change your mind and do something else mm -hmm. and i think like a backflip's a really well mapped one. Like if you think about like um, backflip waves and backflip to kip up and backflip to headstand and backflip for um, rifle roll and then you have step out, helicopter out, snap down. Like there's lots of options. People have already done that with a backflip. Mm. But if you, but people think about all of those options as different skills, right? Where if you just think about them all as different routes through this spider diagram maze of a backflip, you can get there on your own without kind of having to be like, oh, I need to learn that move because you find yourself in a familiar position. And then from that familiar position, you can access a familiar exit. Um, yeah. I love so, this because it's that, it really spells out this way so that you can start expressing your own individuality. And I think sometimes it goes into direct contrast with sometimes what you see on the internet, especially about this theory of forms, you know, the right form, the bad form. Yeah. And this, this is coming at it at a completely different angle as well. And what I find really interesting is that you're introducing this material very early on in like this workshop, which is intro to, to dance acro and putting it yeah. onto people at a very early stage as well. So I guess when, when do you start then playing around with that as well? Is that from the very beginning as well? Uh, because I guess also if you're just trying to learn a backflip, right, you're probably just trying to save yourself and just do the backflip. Well, right. I think there's technical training and mm. there's creative training. And I think they're both um, muscles that need to be trained in different ways. And therefore they need separate sessions or at least separate parts of your session to mm. access them. Um, so if, if you just want to learn a backflip, go to the gym, make sure you've got the right setup, probably a spotter, mm -hmm. get your reps in, do your drills, do your preps, make sure you have adequate 
strength, flexibility, like that's one thing and that's different to creative play. Mm. Um, the reason that I kept the level super basic on day one and then kind of added in sequencing on day two was to get them familiar with the movement, confident with the movement, and then able to mess with the movement. Yeah. I wasn't asking them to do this with stuff that stressed them out. Like mm -hmm. the whole point is like, if, if you're doing a log roll, there are thousands of key positions because there's like, there's not a point where you're like, oh, I'm really stuck here. Like you're literally laying on the floor. So it's like, what can you do here? And the answers are infinite and you can really go through and be like, Oh, where are my arms? Mm. Where are my legs? I could lift my hips. I could lift my chest. I could move my head position. I could move different pieces of me in Canon. I could wiggle my toes. Like you, you can be as absurd or as aesthetic as you like with it. And you can nerd out in a really kind of quite detailed methodical way, or you can be like, Oh, I'm just going to chuck a leg in this because I'm thinking about changing the middle of my movement. And you just like, pick one leg up off the floor, but it totally changes the shape of that log roll. Mm -hmm. um, and I, and I, I think it's never too early to start because we can all walk, right? There's, there are movements that like we're all in bodies. You're inherently comfortable with something and you can start messing with that today. So mm -hmm. like ha have a play, get creative and one day, maybe you'll be doing it with a backflip, but like I use the backflip as an example because it is a very well mapped, mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's a road that has been traveled. Um, but I, I interestingly think that a lot of the easier skills are less well mapped because people don't take the time on them because they're so keen to get to their backflips and mm. whatnot. But I can see how because they are more accessible, they can be way more powerful teaching tools for a wider audience as well, because you can just, they, people can just do that there, get com confident, and then you can go into this deeper area of expressing this creativity, which may be glossed over. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome, man. Well, you know, for what you've got on in the horizon, are you going to go back to performing at some point or are you going to keep on teaching? What's on your mind? Um, that's a really good question. And I think it kind of depends on the state of the world a bit. Hmm. Um, we're definitely kind of laying down roots here in Tassie and that's really nice. I'm definitely planning to keep teaching, um, and keep moving and kind of just like seeing who's around, what's available. Um, I'm definitely open to teaching online classes if people are keen, um, but the, the kind of lay of the land is unknown as I'm sure it is for a lot of people, definitely people in the performing arts. Mm. Um, so it's just kind of case of wait and see and adapt in the best way we know how. Awesome. Well, you know, you broke down a lot of your concepts and ideas, I think in a really clear way. And I'm really keen on re-listening over and taking some notes for myself because I've really enjoyed it. But for people Great. listening, if they wanted to get in touch with you and wanted to find out more, what's the best way? Uh, you can find me on Instagram, um, Mr. Connor Wild. That's 
MR, Connor with one N, wild, just like the word. Um, yeah, that's kind of the easiest way to see a bit of what I do and then just shoot me a DM if you're interested. Awesome. Well, I hope you keep on sharing what you're sharing at the moment because I'm really enjoying that and really keen to see how all these thoughts start filtering out. And I've really enjoyed this chat today. So I appreciate you sharing your time. Me too. Thanks for having me on. And that's it, guys. That's episode 39 with Connor Wilde. I found it really easy to talk with Connor. He was really relaxed, really personable. And so if you guys resonated with what he was saying with his approach, then I urge you to send him a message. You can find him easily on Instagram. That's at Mr. Connor Wild. That's how I contacted him. I just sent him a message and he got back to me pretty straight away. So don't be shy. Shoot him a message. Otherwise, thanks for sticking around and listening to the whole episode. I really appreciate it. Remember, if you have any feedback for me, you can now find me over at the Active Hang. So details are as before. That's on thepassivehang.com. You can enter into the Active Hang, the forum, and then you can find my details there. Sign up, send me a message. Or if you want to keep it to Instagram only, I don't mind that either. You can find me on Instagram. That's at Fayon P. That's at P-H-A-O-N-P. So shoot me a message. I'd love to connect. I've got so many more episodes for you. So much more content. This is what I do. This is what I'm loving. So can't wait to share that with you guys. And I'll see you in the next episode.